and welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Jamie Edwards. With us today is Emma Borg, professor of philosophy at the University of Reading, and she is here to talk with us about semantic minimalism. Emma Borg, welcome. Thank you. Hi. Semantic minimalism is a position in the philosophy of language that takes a very distinct interest in the difference between literal meaning and implied meaning. So um, maybe you could just sort of explain what that difference is. Yeah, of course. I think it's probably easiest to see by looking at an example. So if we think about what might be meant by a sentence, take a sentence, this is an example from a famous philosopher in the area, Paul Grice. Have an example of a sentence like, Jones has nice handwriting. Now you might think to yourself that you know exactly what that sentence means, but Grice points out that it could be used to convey very different things in different kinds of contexts. So imagine that the context in which that sentence is being produced is the following one. I've been asked for a reference for a philosophy job for one of my students, the name of Jones, and I'm writing my letter in response. And in my letter of reference, the only thing that I write for this philosophy student is, Jones has nice handwriting. Now, as Grice points out, what I'm going to convey by the sentence produced in that given context is probably something along the lines of, I don't think Jones has very much philosophical talent, or I don't think Jones is well-equipped for this job. And the way that I convey that is because the, what appears to be the literal meaning of the sentence is not entirely appropriate to the given context in which it's being produced. So we might think of literal meaning as the kind of content that a sentence carries with it, perhaps just in virtue of the words that the sentence contains, or the lexical elements the sentence contains, and the way that they're put together. So on that account, the literal meaning of a sentence like Jones has nice handwriting is just going to be the claim that the given individual picked out by the name Jones has a given property, namely the property of having nice handwriting. But in the context we're interested in, what I'm going to convey by producing that utterance is something along the lines of the alternative proposition, Jones is lacking in philosophical talent or Jones is not to be recommended for this job. And the minimalist then takes this distinction that Grice really drove home, the distinction between the literal meaning of a sentence on one hand and the things that can be implied by the production of that sentence in a particular context. The minimalist takes that distinction very much to heart and says that if we're looking for an account of the meaning of our language, the semantic value of expressions, we should just be focusing on that first part of the divide. What a semantic theory should give us then is an account of the literal meaning of words and sentences, the claims that we're committed to just via the words and the way they're put together, as against the kinds of pragmatic content which are conveyed as part of speaker meaning. So it's a minimal kind of job description for semantics. So semantics is the area of philosophy of language and or linguistics that studies the meaning that a sentence has solely in virtue of which words are in it and the order in which they're put together and stuff like that. Uh, the sort of the, the thing that you automatically mean just in virtue of the fact that you said these particular words and not some other words. But as everybody knows, the meaning of a sentence isn't exhaustively determined by which words appear in it and in which order. The meaning of the things we say is also determined in part by conversational context. And the example you just gave, where what I literally say is that 
Jones has very good handwriting. But what I imply is that that's sort of his only good characteristic, and uh, he's deficient in other respects. So what are some other examples of ways in which conversational context can further affect the meaning of what we say beyond just what it is that we automatically mean in virtue of which words we use? Uh, Well, I think perhaps there are two distinct questions there that we might want to hold apart. There's the question of how much and in what ways the context of utterance can come to affect the literal meaning of what we're saying. And then there's the question of how much context of utterance can come to affect the kind of totality of what we say, the Gricean notion of speaker meaning. And the minimalist wants to give a very specific answer to that first question, the question of how much can context of utterance affect literal semantic content. And her answer is that it can affect semantic content in only very constrained ways. So the thought is there is some contextual impact on semantic content, on the literal content of a sentence, say, but it's very limited. And that's in opposition then to positions which want to claim that you only get to a notion of literal meaning by really doing some extensive consideration of the context of utterance. So minimal semantics wants to suggest that there's a minimal role for contextual features in determining the literal meaning of a sentence. But it's important to note that that's not the claim that there's absolutely no role for context of utterance in determining literal meaning. So you could claim that. You could say that I'm going to count as part of literal meaning only that stuff that is entirely context invariant. So only that stuff that a linguistic item carries with it across every single context of utterance. And you might think that's all that's involved in determining literal meaning and everything else counts as some kind of pragmatic meaning. Now, if you were to claim that, to think that there's no role for context of utterance in determining semantic content, you're also going to have to be committed to the claim that what counts as semantic content is something less than a proposition. That's less than a kind of uh, what Frege called a thought, a kind of complete thinkable thing which will determine a truth of valuable statement. So if you treat context as entirely divorced from semantic content, then the only things that semantic content can be are things which fall short of propositions or truth conditions. And you can see that very clearly if we look at certain kinds of expressions in our language which are known as overt indexicals. An indexical is an expression which looks to the context of utterance to recover part of its value. So these are expressions that Kaplan spent a lot of time thinking about and he gave us a list of the kinds of expressions involved. There are expressions like I, today, tomorrow, this, that, you, maybe he, she, it. Expressions where if you want to see what object in the world a token of that expression is talking about, you have to know about the context in which it was uttered. So I might say in one context, um, today is sunny, and then I might say in another context, on another day, today is sunny. And clearly the thought that I'm going to have expressed on those two occasions is a different content. If my first utterance was on Tuesday the 1st of January, then my first utterance said that it was sunny on Tuesday the 1st of January. If my second utterance was on Wednesday the 2nd of January, my second utterance said that it was sunny on Wednesday the 2nd of January. So there are some expressions in our language where getting to the content 
expressed by one of those expressions requires looking to a context of utterance. So if you thought that semantics was just concerned with features which are independent of context of utterance, you're going to think that for those expressions, you don't get a complete content. And that would mean that the meaning of that sentence, the sentence today is sunny, is just a kind of fragment of meaning. Its literal meaning is a fragment of meaning which requires application in the context of utterance to get you to a complete thought. Now, the minimalist wants to hang on to a sort of old-fashioned idea, perhaps began with Frege, that literal meaning should be concerned with complete thoughts or complete propositions. So it wants to allow that there is some role for context of utterance to play in determining literal meaning. But the claim is that that is very limited. And in particular, the claim is kind of that a semantic theory only needs to look to very tame aspects of a context of utterance. So the thought is we might have to fix some parameters, like say, who is speaking, when they're speaking, where they're speaking. But that once we've fixed those aspects of a context of utterance, it's then a fairly formal, automatic process to work out what the content of an utterance of, say, today is sunny, is going to be. So the thought is you need to look to a context of utterance, but only in this very constrained, very tame kind of way. And that then is in opposition to alternative positions, which say that that kind of account of a context of utterance can't possibly be satisfactory that really pragmatic features have to be treated as fully pervasive through semantic content. It's not just an add-on to get you to a proposition. Really, context figures all the way through determinations of literal meaning. So far, we've discussed two ways in which the context in which a sentence is uttered might affect what it means. The one case, the case where I say, in in the context of a letter of recommendation, Jones has excellent handwriting, but I imply that he has no other redeeming features, versus the case where I say, today it's sunny, and the fact that today refers to May 31st as opposed to some other day is determined by context. Namely, it's determined by the fact that I said that on May 31st. The difference between these two cases is that in the latter case, the case with these funny indexical words, like today and here and now and I, In uh, sentences with those words, what you're literally saying when you say the sentence is affected by the conversational context. Whereas in the former case, what you literally said wasn't affected, you know, you literally said Jones had good handwriting, but that wasn't affected by the fact that it was in the context of a letter of recommendation. The only thing that was affected by the context was what you implied. And the goal of semantic minimalism is to set limits on when the second kind of thing can happen, namely to set limits on when the context in which a sentence is uttered can affect what you're literally saying with it, not just what you're implying with it. Yes, that seems exactly right. So the thought of the minimalist is you set context to provide values for certain expressions in a language, but those expressions are pretty limited. They're the obvious ones like I, this and that, and maybe some others, perhaps that's something we could touch on later. But once you've done that, then you've exhausted the contribution of context to literal meaning. And there then may be a whole range of other ways that context may come into effect, the kinds of things that you convey by your utterances. 
But the claim of the minimalist is that those are pragmatically conveyed things. They're things you might get across in the context, but they're not the things that you're literally committed to by the words that you utter. So the thought is that's going to be our notion of literal meaning, but it comes under pressure because people recently have wanted to say that there's no such clear divide of the kind that the minimalist wants to draw. So the opponents of minimalism in this debate want to say it's not right to think that you can limit the contribution of context to just these few kind of expressions in a language, but really, once we start thinking about it, there are many more expressions which are going to pull in contextual contributions. And we might also think that we need this additional idea that context comes to affect content because we might think that what we want our semantic theory to be answerable to, as it were, is a notion of what the speaker is trying to convey. So minimalism insists on this really firm divide between literal meaning on the one side and implied pragmatic content on the other. But we might worry about a semantic theory which doesn't track our intuitions of what the speaker themselves has said. So we might be worried about the whole divide between literal meaning on the one hand and pragmatic content on the other. So it seems that the dispute between the contextualist and the minimalist, what will decide the dispute will be whether the contextualist can convince us that all of the meaning of our utterances are are shot through with these contextual considerations, or for the minimalist to show us that it's not so difficult to set up these boundaries, to, to allow minimal conditions in which context is important, but to establish that those are, in fact, minimal. Could you say something about why the contextualist thinks that meaning is shot through with these contextual considerations and the way that we might resist that and show that we can really set up a a boundary to prevent these contextual considerations from overrunning our theories of meaning? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the kinds of examples that opponents of minimalism like to appeal to tend to fall into two distinct kinds of categories. One kind of example is what we might think of as an incompleteness example. So that's sentences like, Tipper is ready, I've had enough, penicillin is better. Expressions where it seems as if, if you don't look to the context of utterance to find out what Tipper is ready for, what I've had enough of, what penicillin is better than, you're not going to end up with a complete proposition. So these are incompleteness examples. The other problematic set are what we might think of as inappropriateness cases. So in these cases, the suggestion is there is a complete thought or a complete proposition to be generated just by looking at the words a sentence contains and the way they're put together. But that proposition is going to be inherently unsuitable for the conversational exchange that's going on. And so you might take an example like there's nothing to eat. The minimalist is going to want to make a claim about the literal meaning of that sentence, which is something along the lines of there is nothing to eat in some maximally unconstrained domain. Now, clearly, when anyone says there's nothing to eat, that's not the claim they want to be committing themselves to. What they mean is there's nothing to eat in the kitchen or there's nothing appropriate to eat or there's nothing I'd like to eat in the cupboard. It's a much more narrow kind of claim. And the suggestion there is that these minimal propositions or minimal contents, you know, the claim there's nothing to eat in some unconstrained domain, 
those are just not the kinds of meanings that we would want to be assigning to sentences or to linguistic expressions. Really what our semantic theory should be answerable to are our intuitive judgments of what a given sentence says when it's uttered. So we want our semantic theory to be answerable to the fact that when someone says there's nothing to eat, they standardly mean there's nothing to eat in the relevant domain. So those are two kinds of cases which are supposed to push us away from the minimalist idea that there's a clear limit to the role that context of utterance plays by showing us that in all kinds of cases we're going to end up having to look to a context of utterance either because if we don't look to the context of utterance we just don't get a proposition in the first place, those are the incompleteness cases, or because if we don't look to a context of utterance we end up with something that's just radically inappropriate the conversational context. And of course, the main proponent of these kinds of cases is Charles Travis, who's well known for producing many, many cases of this form, which seem to show us that for sentences where we might intuitively have thought there's really very limited role for a context of utterance, actually, we have to allow a much bigger role. So to take one of Travis's most famous examples, you might imagine a girl called Pia who's got a Japanese maple growing in her garden. Now, the Japanese maple clearly has red leaves, but Pia, on looking out at her tree, thinks that red is the wrong colour for leaves to be, so she goes out and she meticulously paints every one of her red leaves green. And then Travis asks us to consider the following kind of case. He says, in one scenario, Pia's friend, who's an artist, rings up and he's looking for something to balance out a composition that he's designing. He says he needs something green. And Pia responds by saying, you can have these, these leaves are green. And Travis says intuitively in that context, her claim is true, the leaves are indeed green. But then he says, consider a second scenario where Pia has been asked by her botanist friend to supply some green leaves for an experiment he's going to be running. And in that context, Pia says, you can have these, these leaves are green. And Travis says intuitively in that second context, what you've said or what Pia has said is something false. When she says to the botanist of the painted leaves, these leaves are green, her claim is no longer true. And Travis says what that shows is that context of utterance is in fact everything in determining the truth conditions for sentences. Because unless we know the role that the sentence, these leaves are green, is playing in a given context, we just don't know what it means to claim that the leaves are green. Does it include painted leaves? Does it require leaves that are green all the way through? Does it require leaves that are green to some standard? Yeah, according to Travis, without appeal to a context of utterance, we have something that's just too thin to determine a complete thought. So maybe just to understand how this argument is supposed to go, I guess the idea would be something like, well, you know, you might think that when I say Tipper is ready, I'm just literally saying she's ready. But then I imply something further. I imply something like Tipper is ready to go to the movies or Tipper is ready to go swimming. Then when you try to and actually think about that a bit, it becomes confusing because you ask yourself, well, what is it to just be ready? Is there any such thing as just being ready, period? It seems like you're, you have to be ready to do something. And then once you start down that kind of line of thought, then it seems to look less and less likely that the literal meaning of tipper is ready is just tipper is ready, period. It starts to seem like, well, no, the literal meaning of tipper is ready has to be supplied by context because it would just be incomplete 
you know, it's just sort of meaningless to say somebody's ready, period. So that what's going on here is that we're broadening the class of cases where conversational context can affect the literal meaning beyond just the standard set of words that everybody knows and loves, like today and he and she and I. So what's your take on those cases? Um, Obviously, that's a very good question. (laughs) If the minimist is not going to like these kinds of cases, then it's beholden upon her to give you some kind of account of them. But one of the things I think I would like to stress is that there often seems to be a bit of an assumption going on that a minimalist is going to have to give a single uniform answer to all these kinds of cases. So we've already drawn one distinction between examples which are supposed to show some kind of incompleteness and examples which are just supposed to show some kind of inappropriateness. But there are other distinctions that you might want to draw here as well. You know, there are other distinctions in terms of the kinds of expressions which are in play and you know, gradable adjectives versus other kinds of expressions. So there are probably a range of distinctions we want to draw here. And my suggestion would be that a minimalist doesn't have to give a single uniform answer to all these kinds of cases. So one of the morals I'd like people to take home is that we really need to look at these cases on a case-by-case basis, working through quite carefully what might be involved in any one of them. So the example we've been thinking about is the I am ready case. And I think there are various moves a minimalist might want to make in these kinds of cases. The one that's been most commonly put on the table, I think, is to pursue the line you suggested, which is just to say, look, the meaning of I am ready is I am ready, full stop. That's its literal content, and everything else counts as part of a conveyed implied content or conveyed pragmatic content. And one of the reasons we might think that is that it becomes very difficult to draw a boundary once you start moving beyond that kind of content. So you said, you know, initially you might think the meaning of I am ready is just I am ready, full stop. And then you start thinking about, well, what could that even mean? What would it mean to be just be ready? But the minimalist wants to point out that those kinds of concerns, once you start having them, are going to reoccur for almost any content that you plug in to expand the content that you started with. So you want to ask, well, I am ready. What would it be just to be ready for something? But the minimalist is then going to want to ask in response, well, if you say that I am ready means I'm ready to go to the cinema on this given occasion, we want to ask, well, what does it mean just to be ready to go to the cinema? You know, does it mean that you're ready to go to the cinema next door or you're ready to go to the cinema in the next town, that you're ready to go to the cinema immediately or in five minutes, that you're ready to go and see... Kung Fu Panda 2, but not the new Pirates of the Caribbean. You know, how much more information is going to have to get plugged in until we overcome these concerns about incompleteness? And the minimalist says there's really no principled reason to want to draw the line before I am ready and after I am ready to go to the cinema. Why not draw it after I'm ready to go to the cinema to see Kung Fu Panda? And for any point at which you want to draw the line, the minimalist is just going to ask you, well, why there? So that's one of the answers the minimalist wants to give, that, you know, once you move away from the idea that literal meaning is just dictated by words and the way they're put together, then you're going to fail to draw the boundary anywhere, and you're going to end up sort of sliding into this idea that literal content is exactly as complex as the precise content communicated in a single exchange. 
But obviously that kind of move is going to end up having repercussions for things like learnability and systematicity and compositionality, the kinds of formal aspects of a theory of meaning that the minimalist really wants to stress. So that's one kind of answer that you might think I am ready just can mean I am ready, full stop. So then an alternative move that you might want to make would be to think that maybe ready really does require some additional information from the context of utterance. And this comes back to the question of how we're going to limit the role of context of utterance on literal meaning. So some minimalists want to claim that context of utterance can only come to figure when you have one of these obvious expressions, the eyes and this and that and the tomorrow and today. Those are the expressions that Kaplan originally told us were indexical. And some minimalists want to claim that that's the limit of context sensitivity in our language. Now, I have tried to suggest that, in fact, we might be a little bit more liberal about the expressions in our language we want to treat as requiring some contextual input. So I think I might want to say that it's just not clear exactly what we want to say about ready now. Is ready an expression which requires some information from the context of utterance, or is it complete as it stands? But my suggestion would be that why admitting that doesn't make you into one of these contextualist opponents of minimalism concerns the kind of motivation you could offer for making that sort of claim. So remember that what the contextualist wants to allow is that context of utterance can affect literal meaning because we want our account of literal meaning to match up to our intuitions of what is said by a given utterance. So the contextualist wants to claim that semantic content should track very closely our intuitive judgments of what is said by a sentence. If, when someone says, I'm ready, the intuitive judgment is that what's been said is, I'm ready to go to the cinema, then that's the analysis that our semantic theory should give us. My claim, on the other hand, has been that we want a semantic theory to accommodate or to capture certain kind of formal aspects of our linguistic abilities. We don't necessarily require a semantic theory to track our judgments of what is said. So we might end up treating some expressions as a bit more complicated than they look on the surface. We might think that ready actually means ready to do something. But the reasons that we could have for treating ready in that way, and still being a minimalist, I would suggest, have got to be syntactic reasons. It's got to be something about the way that that expression behaves in relationship to other bits of the language. It can't be just a desire to capture our intuitive judgments of what is said. So we might end up moving towards a position which allows a bit more context sensitivity than just the Kaplanian expressions, but which nevertheless resists the kind of flood of context sensitivity that we find when we try and get our semantics to answer to our judgments of what is said. So you mentioned that the contextualist wants the theory of meaning to track our intuitive sense of what is said. And that seems, on the face of it, a nice result to have from a theory of meaning. Is the reason that we want to resist this because the attempt to do it inevitably fails for some of the reasons we've already canvassed, or is there some other independent reason 
um, we don't require this of our theory of meaning. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. Everyone has agreed that if we could get a semantic theory which delivered our intuitive judgments of what is said, that would be a really nice result, right? We could all go home happy right now. The minimalist, though, is worried that you're just not going to be able to do that, or that if you do that, the costs are going to be too high. So the minimalists worry with that idea that our semantic theory might neatly track our judgments of what is said, is that once you start looking at our judgments of what is said by an utterance, they turn out to be incredibly diverse. So imagine that we have the following kind of occasion. I see that you run out of petrol, and I helpfully say to you, there's a garage around the corner. And we now ask ourselves the question, what have I literally said there? You know, what proposition have I expressed that gives the literal content of my utterance? And the minimalist worries that there's just too many candidates here. So I might have just said, there's a garage around the corner. That might be the proposition I've literally expressed. It's the one given by the words my sentence contained. But I might also be taken to literally assert that there's an open garage just around the corner. That's what's required by relevance to make my sentence relevant to your condition. It's got to be that the garage is open. But it's also got to be that the garage is selling the kind of petrol or kind of gas, sorry, that your car takes. So we might think that what I've literally expressed is that there's an open garage around the corner which sells the kind of gas your car takes. We might also think that what I've literally said is that there's an open garage not very far just around the corner that sells the kind of gas that your car takes. And it seems that we can go on expanding the proposition indefinitely. And at some point, everybody is going to agree that the content we've arrived at is one that's just implied by what you've said. Okay, the thought is that at some point you might have got this information across, but it doesn't really count as part of the literal meaning of the sentence as uttered on that occasion. But the minimalist concern is that there's no way of selecting which of those many propositions is the one that gives the literal meaning once you move away from the idea that literal meaning is dictated just by words and structure. So once you open the door to a little bit more pragmatic content to kind of get a bit closer to the content or to our intuitive judgments of what has been said by a sentence, then it seems the floodgates are open and we just don't know where to stop. So the minimalist thought is that judgments of what is said in a given context, although clearly they depend in some way on your grasp of the literal meaning of the sentence, they're really a massive interaction effect. Your judgment of what someone has said will depend on your general encyclopedic knowledge. It will depend on your knowledge of the precise communicative exchange you're engaged in. It will depend on your background knowledge of the speaker. All sorts of socio-economic and other kinds of concerns come in to affect your judgment of what someone has said when they produce a given utterance. And the minimalist claim is that there's no way to start with that very, very complex thing, your judgment of what someone has conveyed by saying the thing they did, and somehow abstract out from that just the part that counts as literal meaning. Instead, the minimalist claims, you know, you need to keep the boundaries of literal meaning set by the words and the structure, and then treat the rest of it as part of the pragmatic expansion of that content. Emma Borg, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. To listen to future episodes of Elucidations, you may consult our website at philosophy.uchicago.edu slash podcasts.